0: featuring tales to terrify and the all new far fetched fables everyone has a story in the district of wonders come and find yours
1: <laughs>
3: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 418. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, show 418. Man, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show then. First up, we have an interview with Bruce Dr. Professor Bruce Drinkwater, who, who has went and invented a sonic tractor beam. I kid you not. Then we have the main fiction, which is *Century Overload by Julie Frost. Then, after the credits, if anybody is interested, I have a little trip down memory lane. And if you listen to this, yes, <laughs> the police should have been involved. That's all I can say. So... First up is, like I say, a little interview I did with Professor Bruce Drinkwater. And I've seen this article in, in, in my feeds and everywhere. And Bruce and his team have invented a, a sonic tractor beam. Now, Bruce, this is not science fiction. You know, you really have invented a, a sonic tractor beam.
4: Yes, it's true. It's true.
3: Bring us up to speed then, if you
4: don't mind, you know. Yeah, OK. Give, give us a bit more in-depth to it. What is it? So you've got to imagine you're you're looking at the device now, and it's uh, about the size of a small dinner plate, and it's made up of, of about a hundred small loudspeakers, about the size of your thumbnail, all outputting very high intensity sound. But it's ultrasound, so you can't hear it, but it's sound nonetheless. They're outputting this sound, and we're forming an interference pattern in you know in front of the dinner plate about. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 20 or so centimeters away from, from this dinner plate, this array of loudspeakers, and we're carefully controlling that uh, acoustic pressure field, and that's enabling us to grip hold of and move objects. So it's a small scale tractor beam, but it's a tractor beam nonetheless.
3: How long have you been working on this project? Ooh, about a year and a half now. And, I mean, how do you, you just, just to kind of just start doing this gentlemen do, you know, do you have to go to a kind of a body at your you know university or wherever you work and you know put forward a, a kind of an explanation why you want to do
4: this <laughs> well yeah that is a very good question you can imagine that <laughs> you, you can't apply to the government and say i'd like to make a tractor beam can i have some money <laughs> they, they, they probably wouldn't be too impressed with that although i think the tractor beams I hopefully we'll talk about that a bit later are actually really really useful but uh uh, so how it happened in in our case was we were working on actually a different project. Uh, so we were trying to make uh, a system that could allow you to uh, to feel ultrasound. So it was a form of haptic feedback. So we and, and actually a company has been formed that that, that that made the transducers in in our in in the tractor beam project. So a company called Ultra Haptics. So. What they do now, and this is research we were first working on, is they, they, they use these little loudspeakers and they focus the energy at a, at a point. And if you then put your hand at that point, you can feel a small, uh, uh, look, it feels a bit like somebody blowing on, on, on a point in your hand. And so the idea is to use that for, uh, all sorts of ways in which you might want to interact with a computer. So you can imagine that, uh, uh, if, if you're trying to, uh, uh, change the volume, of of your car hi-fi you know rather than turning a knob you you wave at the at the at the computer but you not only do you wave at it which is a sort of a a one-way process that you wave at the computer but the computer can interact back with you so it's a way of you interacting with the computer so we were working on that project which is a really interesting project in its own right but it meant that we developed this high-powered ultrasound system with all these little transducers and then I basically thought, well, what else can we do with this device? And one thing that i had been thinking about for some years, ever since I saw some lovely work they did up in, in the University of Dundee uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I, I thought, well, this same device that we've got that we've been using for haptic feedback, we can use it to create a track to and that's kind of where it all started. What what
3: do you see when you, you know, you can, you're observing this tractor beam, do you know is it is Can you see anything? Like you say, can it lift anything I think, or can it move yeah, so, anything? So you,
4: you, what you see, you see the objects that are being lifted. You can't see the sound field. It's just sound like, like the sound that we're, we're talking to each other with at the moment. It's, it's a higher intensity sound. It's very loud sound, but as I say, it's ultrasound. You can't, you can't hear it. So it makes the experiment, uh, or the device essentially quiet for us, uh, Cats and dogs and bats, other animals that, that can hear ultrasound, would probably find it quite unpleasant. We've, we've not yet done any tests in the vicinity of those of, of, of any creatures like that. But yeah, what? So the only thing that you see is this object that's basically hovering or appears to be hovering in, in midair in front of you. We've only picked up pretty small objects, so their uh, maximum is, is four millimeters, which is uh, about the size of a small garden pea. So pretty small objects, but way bigger than anything else that anyone has previously managed to pick up with these sorts of things, which are basically previously people only be able to pick up basically microscopic particles with, with, with anything approaching what we've done.
3: So what about scaling? Can you scale this up?
4: Uh, yes, you can. Uh, I don't know where the limits are. I, uh, I, I uh, So I could certainly imagine you could lift things... Uh, up that would be the size of a, uh, of a table tennis ball or a, or a or uh, uh, maybe even a, a tennis ball. I'm, I'm not sure about going beyond that. I mean, so to go beyond that, you need two things. You need more energy, you need more power, and you also need to reduce the frequency. So that's reducing the pitch, which, le- which is required because the wavelength of the sound that you're using has to be bigger than the object that you're trying to pick up. And so that's why we can only at the moment pick up small objects because our wavelength is about is about a centimetre in size. So our objects have to be quite a bit smaller than a centimetre. That's good because that puts you in the ultrasonic range. If you if you go to a wavelength, say we wanted to levitate you, uh, you could curl up into a ball. I'm not quite sure how big you are, but imagine it's quite a, a human-sized ball. Then the wavelength would have to be about three times as big as you. So let's say that was about a metre or, or a metre and a half in size, so saying you could curl up into a half-meter-sized ball, that would um, that would put you at a frequency in the hundreds of hertz, which would be uh, towards the lower end of the scale on a piano. So really, very much an audible an audible sound. So it would be both very very loud and, you know, and very very audible. So that, the, the, those two things, I think, make it quite difficult to scale it up. Yes, you'd uh, you, you really need big. some.
3: You'd need some big speakers, Bruce. That's for sure.
4: <laughs> you certainly would. That's right. And uh, uh, so, at, at the moment, our device is operating in the, in the ultrasonic range at, 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 at sound intensity levels of around uh, 140, 150 decibels. And so, the loudest rock concert, sort of, uh, the, 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 you know, the loudest recording recorded sound in rock concerts, is the order of. 135, 140 decibels, so we are louder than the loudest rock concert, although because we're ultrasonic, you can't hear it, but if we had to go down in frequency to get the wavelength bigger, to lift you up, then you would be able to hear it, and I suspect that would do you some, some damage.
3: Is it then, you know, what's to, to come of this, Bruce, is it destined to be kind of
4: lab-bound, well so no i, I don 't think so, so I think I think, that, I think some of those high, some of those uh, I think some of those science fiction dreams are not going to come true
3: not yet not yet and not yet <laughs>
4: uh, not yet I mean if someone would pay me to do it it' would be, it'd be fantastic i 'll push it as hard as I possibly could if someone would pay me the money but, uh, but I think there are some things that you could do that would be really useful. one is on, on this length scale, so on the on the millimeters and centimeters, there are lots of objects like pharmaceuticals, so imagine the size of a pill. Uh, they're of this set, same sort of size so if and and if you could move things like that around a production line without having to touch them then there can be no possibility of any contamination so there's some quite uh, interesting uses of this technology for things that, that that are would would be really for manufacturing things that are really sensitive to contamination or if the things are dangerous so you didn't want to touch them because if the thing is or object is is levitated on on on, on on the, you know, held in place by the sound, then there are no moving parts, no requirements to clean anything. So that that could be quite a nice application on this scale. Personally, I'm actually really interested in, in going down in scale to try and hold and manipulate and control really small objects. That's my my sort of personal research interest, and that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment. And 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 so I'm I'm hoping to be able to miniaturise this to the point where we can maybe control uh, small uh, drug-containing capsules that, that within the human body. So imagine you in, in inject a drug into the body and then carefully position it with this ultrasonic tractor beam uh, and then release it exactly where it needs to be released, all though on a much smaller scale. So that's going the opposite way to the sort of science fiction uh, uh, ab- abducting People from Earth, etc., <laughs> with with uh, tractor beams. Uh. I mean, you,
3: you you published your findings in Nature Communications. I'm just wondering, then, you know, because, like you say, you know, they have the term sonic tractor beam. What was what's the reaction been like from professionals?
4: Pretty good, really. Yeah, it's it's uh, so obviously likening it to to. Uh, so tractor beams you know, comes with a, with a with an element of risk of you know, people saying, "What are you crazy guys doing, uh, <laughs> making tractor beams?" But interestingly, uh, a lot of science fiction things like this do inspire scientists and engineers regularly. And so, uh, unbeknownst to the general public, there's actually quite an active community of researchers working on tractor beams, none of them, myself included. But none of us are trying to to create tractor beams like you might imagine we are. We're all trying to Create microscopic tractor beams for things like manipulating objects in the in the human body and other much smaller scale applications like that. So, so interestingly, within the scientific community, it's uh, the word has 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 got a slightly different meaning. If if you follow me,
3: when you first saw it happening, do you know what I mean? What did you think?
4: Yeah, I mean it's 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 an amazing experiment to to see. Radio uh, and podcasts don't do it justice. And, and it's also quite a, a binary experiment. I mean, something is either being levitated before your eyes or it's not. It, it, there's no halfway between the two. And so you can imagine the that we did a whole load of experiments before we got it working. And a lot of those experiments were were, were quite disappointing. They involved us dropping things and them and them dropping <laughs> as they would normally do. And so we, we, we had got to the point where we never thought it was going to work, really, because you, you see something drop so many times and we're all used to gravity acting that you sort of think, well it's going to carry on acting and uh, and but that so you know then when it did suddenly work it was it was tremendous the phd student doing the work kind of came and and knocked on my door and 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 he's very very laid back and he said yeah I've, i think i've got it working and i thought oh yeah i'm sure you have probably you haven't but we went along and you know and there it was and and really it sort of just uh, i don't know it takes your breath away really uh, i've got used to it now a bit but uh, it's still in a, in a rather beautiful experiment to see things just Hovering in space with with no apparent, of course, there is a force on them, and the force is due to sound wave. And I've studied it and I understand it, but it's still quite a beautiful experiment to behold. You know,
3: your actual, you know, the thing that you've built. Do you build this? You know, like you say, you 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 speak as and everything. Do you build these from the ground up yourself, or are you are you just pulling these from you know from off the shelf from a, a shop or a you know a, a wholesaler?
4: So. A, a bit of both, really. So, uh, the a, a company called Ultra Haptics, who were a, a spin-out company from the university, uh, are the people that make the electronics that that drive the system, and that's really important because we have to really carefully control the signals that we're sending to each of these little loudspeakers. The loudspeakers themselves are actually just the insides of parking sensors. So, parking sensors work on ultrasound. So, we we can buy. By the, the loudspeakers, uh, the electronics is is, is, is quite specialist, uh, and, and fortunately we we, we work with these guys, Ultrahaptics, to so we could get access to that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I think in 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 the future, I hope this might inspire some some sort of amateur, uh, you know, electrical engineers to to have a go at making one of these things. I don't see why not.
3: Well, that's what that was me my last question, Bruce. I was going to say, you know. From where you are now, do you know what I mean? What, where do, would you like it to go? Not no, where will it go, where would you like it to go?
4: Well, so I. What, the thing that I'm working on now uh, is is trying to miniaturise what we've done uh, and get it to work within the tissues that make up the human body. There are a whole lot of applications where you might want to grab things and manipulate them within the body. For example, delivering drugs to a very specific location, also performing uh, surgical procedures, but uh, uh, you know, on a much smaller scale. So the, the, these tractor beams act as a as a pair of hands, effectively, that could be could be moving tiny things around within the body to to uh, to undertake. I, I'm not quite sure what exact surgical procedures, but uh, that's something we're something we're contemplating, and that's actually been one of the really positive things about all the, the press coverage uh, that our, our de- developments had. That people have approached us, you know, suggesting all sorts of possible things that, that we could use it for. So it's, it's helped us get in touch with, with some of these medical medical uh, uh, experts to help us realise that that possibility. But yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm particularly passionate about. <laughs>
3: Bruce, it's honestly it's been lovely talking. To you. Just to have a little insight into it, yeah, you know when I kind of seen, I seen a press cutting of it, you know what I mean, and you, your eyes do go, oh, what, what's this? But now that we know, and like you say, you know, you, you're taking away, not taking away the fantasy side of it, but you know, you, you're making the real world applications. Like you say, going into the the human body and manipulating and moving things around in there is just a fast, that's, you know, from my point of view as well, that's just as good as any moving objects in the, in the big real world. Do you know what I mean? This is quite amazing.
4: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. That's why I I would always start out by saying, I think that those, those sort of microscopic applications, which I think what are going to be the real applications of this are actually better than the, than the sci-fi applications. So it's, it's a, it's a case where, Sci-fi has sort of inspired scientists, and engineers to do stuff uh, to see if, if things are possible, but which seems a bit of a crazy thing to do on the one hand. But actually, I think it's going to deliver really, really useful things for for human society in the years to come.
3: Bruce, it's be, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
4: Oh Well, thank you for your uh, your really good questions. <laughs>
3: There you go. On big thank you to Bruce. And if you want to come over to the website, Bruce has kindly given us, he's given us the blueprints to this Sonic Tractor Bean. Yeah, he's got a PDF. And you can get that if you just come over to our front of our website. You'll see it there. Just download it from your phone. I think you can get the blueprint and you will sign up to our newsletter as well in kind of twofold. So come over. There's a little free gift from there from Bruce. <laughs> Do do your own sonic tractor beam. How cool is that? So next up is the main fiction, and it is by Julie Frost, Century Overlord, And it was originally published in Plasma Frequency Magazine. I'll give you a heads up about Julie. Julie Frost writes every shade of speculative fiction and lives in Utah with her family. Her fiction has appeared in... Cosmo's unlikely story, Plasma Frequency, from which the story is, and Stupefying Stories, as well as many other venues. She's been a finalist at the Writers of the Future and the Hidden Prize for Prose. Her first novel, Pack Dynamics, will be released at Salt Lake Comic Con by Wordfire Pressed. She whines about writing a lot. and There's a link on to... Julie's site there as well so do pop over and say hello as well to that this story is narrated by Mark Leventhal Mark is a writer and musician who has lived and worked in the Los Angeles area for over 30 years born and raised in Buffalo, New York he moved to LA in the early 80s to become a rock star go on there Mark Live, live that dream lad that didn't quite happen as planned, but a lot a lot of other cool stuff did. He's been involved with both the music business having co-written the hit single Three Little Pigs and in the band Green Jello. And the Motion Picture Industry having co-written a score for the cult movie Valley Girl. Go on there, Mark, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud present.
2: Sensory Overload by Julie Frost, read by Mark Leventhal. You've got to be kidding me. Trust me, it wasn't my idea. Jenna, my immediate supervisor at Watchdogs, Inc., leaned on the wall in her office and crossed her arms, glaring at me. I do security work, not babysitting, I said, crossing my own arms and glaring right back. After that last disaster, you're lucky you still have a job, Fitz. She shook her head. The big bosses wanted you specifically for this one. Blaming me for my principal getting shot when they wouldn't even let me carry a weapon seemed unfair. At least he hadn't been killed, and I'd taken out the people, things would have been a better word, everything considered, that were after him, with my bare hands, almost dying myself in the process. I called that a win, but I guess people in high places were still pissed. Now they were sending me off on another job where I couldn't carry a lethal weapon. Easing me back in my ass. Maybe someone had told them about the nights I still woke up screaming. But work was work even though tagging along behind a little team of artsy-fartsy types while they analyzed the culture of our new alien friends wasn't exactly my idea of a rip-roaring good time. I still had to eat. Paying off the sensory enhancements, which I credited for saving my life during the cluster foxtrot my previous assignment had turned into, would be a bonus. How's your implant? Jenna asked. She seemed genuinely concerned but the big bosses had probably sent her fishing for information about the chip that kept my brain from ODing on input that humans weren't really designed to receive. I'd heard rumbles that they blamed the enhancements for the screw-up. It's fine, for God's sake, I said, with some irritation. I'd be dead if I didn't have them, and so would that mirrors dude. I saw their heat signatures before I saw the actual bad guys. Tell the big bosses that. Okay, okay, look, she said. Just go down and enjoy the pretty pictures, okay? There's nothing dodgy about our hosts or the job. The bosses want to get you started on something easy your first shot out of the box after the last foo bar. So, what's my function? If there's nothing dodgy and I can't carry a weapon, why bother sending me? I was still grouchy. You've got those manly muscles and you're not stupid. Bad things can happen even when no one intends them to.
1: She shrugged. Not for us to question why. We just go where we're paid to. That was so. I didn't have to be happy about it. Yeah,
2: I've seen pics of these critters. My so-called muscles aren't going to be much use against them.
1: Fitz. Fine, I grunted. Yay, artwork. I hoped I'd be able to stay awake. I got stuck on a
2: shuttle with two kids, PhD wannabes, according to their files, and a professor. Daniel, the male student, and Stepanoff, the female prof, looked me up and down once and then ignored me. I was furniture to them, and that was fine. We humans were still tiptoeing around alien species. Very much the new kid on the intergalactic block. We didn't want to ruffle any feathers, or tentacles in this case. This was our first cultural expedition to the planet Mondinia, and it needed to go smoothly, though the government mucky-mucks had looked each other over and decided we could get along. I stifled an eye roll as the girl student came over and sat beside me. There was one in every crowd. This one had her mouse-colored hair pulled back into a ponytail, and she hadn't sprung for the surgery that would have made her glasses unnecessary. Sorry about them, she said, jerking her chin toward her colleagues. They can be almighty snobbish at times. She had a soft drawl that she hadn't acquired in this sector. She stuck her hand out. I'm Meredith. My friends call me Mary. Fitz, I answered, engulfing her tiny hand in a huge one and feeling suddenly awkward. You, uh, ever been on one of these art things before? I did my master's thesis on hidden imagery in the Guifaldian sculptures. She shrugged, but I could tell that her casual disinterest was hiding a case of the wibbles. Her scent, soap, and jasmine shampoo got slightly stronger, while her cheeks were flaming red to my thermovision. vision This is the first time I've been one of the first, though. That's something I don't get, I said. Why send down a couple of students and a professor for the very first cultural expedition? You'd think they'd want people more... experienced? Maybe they want fresh eyes on it, she grinned. I'm not looking a gift horse in the mouth. Well, I'm just supposed to hang back and make sure nothing bad happens. To either the art students or the Mondanese. I reflexively checked my stunner. Not much for the museum scene myself. Other than nose art on interstellar fighters, I'd never really been interested in paintings. We might be able to find something you like in this one. She smiled. The Mondanese used to be a warrior race before they found enlightenment. And turned into a bunch of wimps was my unspoken thought but I wasn't going to say it out loud the fact that they were a peaceful race now was lucky for us their technology far outstripped ours it'll be fascinating to see how their art has evolved since they quit fighting each other Mary waved her hand at her compatriots Daniel, the other student? Daniel had a ponytailed mohawk and a goatee which meant he looked exactly like I thought an art student should look he's a conspiracy theorist he doesn't believe they've actually gone peaceful at all It'll be nice to be able to rub his nose in the artwork. She leaned over and whispered, I got a sneak peek at some of it. It's amazing. I didn't know what could be amazing about art done by creatures who bore so little resemblance to us humans. But I guessed I was going to find out. The shuttle slowed and shook a little as it came in for a landing. Before we touched down, Stepanov gave a little shriek. What are you doing with that? she asked, pointing at my stunner. I looked at her like she was an idiot, which, to my mind, she was. I'm a security guard. It's a little extra security. Good God, leave it here. We can't offend the Mondanese by going to their museum armed to the teeth. Great, she was one of those. But she was also the boss. Reluctantly, I took it off and set it on my seat, shaking my head and hoping I wouldn't need it. The Mondanese were supposed to be peaceful, but I'd only believe it when I saw it. We landed, and I let the others go out first. A representative from the museum met us at the bottom of the ramp. I hadn't realized that things would be so big. Its bulbous body towered a good half meter over my two-meter-tall frame. The Mondanese had tentacles everywhere. They used four for locomotion, five more as arms and hands, and a few smaller ones scattered around their bodies for... I didn't want to think about what... Their three eyes were at the tips of flexible stalks, with a trio of tentacles above each of them that served as eyebrows. This one smelled like a combination of seaweed and rotting strawberries. It kind of creeped me out, but then. I'm the type that avoids eating calamari. The Mandin observed us for a moment, waving its tentacles in a complicated dance, while purple highlights flashed off and on in the folds of its olive green, hairless skin. The harness it wore jingled as it spun around and rumbled Follow me, please through a lipless slash of a mouth. "'Isn't she fabulous?' Mary whispered to me as it ushered us toward a conveyance on a rail in the street. Daniel shot her a dirty look and muttered something about consorting with Neanderthal Philistines. So I shot him a dirty look in turn. He hadn't meant me to hear him, and he turned red and walked a little faster. "'How can you tell it's a she?' I asked. "'The harness,' Mary said as we got into the car. "'They don't have secondary sexual characteristics like we do.' And even without the harnesses, they can tell each other apart. But the arrangements of the buckles and decorations are unique to the sexes. She started to sit next to me, but the prof, frowning, drew her aside and had a low conference with her. I caught not supposed to make friends with him, and reminds me of my brother before Mary pulled away and sat beside me anyway, shaking her head. Elitist prigs, she mumbled. Hey, if you're going to get in trouble. She waved her hand. I'm a scholarship kid that worked my ass off to get here. They can go whistle for it. That explained the glasses anyway. And Professor Stepanov didn't pick me, the committee did. She's lucky the committee picked her, in fact. I was finding Mary kind of fetching after my initial annoyance with her had faded. She was a lot more like a real person than I'd expected her to be. Maybe she'd go for a drink. I squashed that thought flat. The ivory towers of academia and the low-down dirt of security work had no truck with each other, except in situations like this. Wouldn't be fair to bring her into my world, and I wasn't smart enough to be in hers. This was a job, plain and simple. No socializing with the natives. We stopped in front of a slug-colored building made of some kind of unnaturally smooth aggregate, and the Mandin took us through a door too tall for humans and into an echoing chamber, before handing, tentacling, us off to a colleague and leaving with another complicated wave of her limbs. I am Nomali, the director of the museum, the new Mandin said. It was practically identical to the other one, except for its harness and its smell, which was more like seaweed and rotting meat. I assumed it was male. I sure couldn't tell from the voice. I trust your journey was pleasant? Pleasant enough, Professor Stepanov said, glancing down her nose towards me. Thank you for letting us see your museum on such short notice. It was, as you say, no problem, Nomali said. We exchanged introductions, and he blinked at me and twitched his eyestalks before escorting us onwards. The museum begins in the center, he said while we walked, and goes outward in a spiral, starting with our most primitive works and ending with our most modern, and encompassing painting, sculpture, holos, and... other forms. He let out a wet cough, rolled his tongue out, and examined what was on it by dipping one eye stalk down before popping it back into his mouth. His tongue had suckers on the bottom of it. I shuddered. Nomali led us into the first chamber and gestured around. These are ancient paintings on the walls of sea caverns. The original cave walls were excavated and brought here. His voice faded to a drone as I tuned him out. I wasn't here for an art lecture. I was here to make sure nothing untoward happened to my charges. Not that there was much chance of that. They'd shut down the museum for us, and the paintings and sculptures and things were no threat. The only problem I was going to have was staying awake. At least that's what I thought until something skittered across the corner of my vision. When I turned my head to look directly at it, nothing was there. However, I could have sworn that it was about knee-high, shaped a lot like our hosts, and holding some sort of staff. No, Molly didn't act like he'd seen anything unusual, and neither did anyone else. I almost thought I was imagining things until I saw it again as we left the room. It leaned on the staff for a few moments and then blipped out of existence. This time I saw it for long enough that I could tell it was registering with my infrared detectors, but none of my other senses. A twinge of pain nipped me between my eyes. I remembered Nomali's remark about other forms of art, and I thought this must be one. Resolving to pay better attention, I looked around the next chamber with more interest. This one held ancient, simple sculptures carved from wood and molded from clay. Most of them were obviously creatures native to this world, but some of them were aliens we'd encountered in other places, and a few were unrecognizable. Daniel asked about them, and Nomali managed to convey a shrug. No one knows, he said. They may be alien life forms from long ago, or they may be representations of the old gods. Our ancestors didn't leave a written record behind. All we have is their art. More infrared beasties populated this room. Some of them were Mandanese, and some of them were other aliens. They warred with one another, enacting scenes of violence and bloodshed that no one but me apparently could see. All but one. It stood there, observing, holding a staff, its tentacles drooping. I wanted to ask Nomali about it, but I was furniture and not supposed to get involved, so I kept my mouth shut and my eyes open. The twinge of pain worsened, and I rubbed my forehead. Room by room, the art became more elaborate. Wood and clay sculptures gave way to stone, bronze, and holographs. The paintings had complex colors out of the spectrum of normal human vision. Abstracts became prominent, though they didn't dominate. Some of them were in colors that made my stomach queasy, and a few looked not quite abstract, although I couldn't make out what they really were, and the hairs on my arms stood on end when I looked at them. I wished that Mary had the same enhancements I did, because she'd enjoy this tour a lot more. She was enthralled enough anyway, but she didn't even know what she was missing. Most of the works depicted scenes of war. Even the subjects of ordinary portraits were armed to their pointy teeth, and the children had weapons as well. Images of quiet home life were practically non-existent, and the mandin with the staff was in every room. He got slightly bigger each time, and I noticed that he had three extra tentacles over each eye. All he did was watch. The next-to-last exhibit held a huge painting portraying an epic battle in a civil war that had taken place on land, sea, and in space. This work combined the mediums of stationary paint and the moving infrared creatures, which played out their scenes and then snapped back to their original places to start over again. The painting beside it showed the aftermath. Wrecked boats, vehicles, spaceships, and bodies were strewn about a harsh and blasted landscape, and the infrared Mondanese were nowhere to be seen. However, in the upper part of the painting, the Mandan with the staff was outlined in ultraviolet paint. Even though our species were vastly different, he had been drawn in such a way that I felt the crushing weight of his sorrow, and I wondered if he was supposed to be some sort of religious figure. The three extra eye tentacles reinforced this impression. The pain in my head became a definite ache. Of course, I didn't know if the Mondanese even had a religion. Most species did, interestingly enough, and a lot of them were pretty similar. Who's that in the top part of the painting? I blurted. I keep seeing him. Professor Stepanov shot me a withering look, curling her lip. There's no one in the top part of that painting. Please excuse our security guard, she said to Nomali. He seems to have forgotten his station. It's quite all right, Nomali answered. Some of our pieces have an interesting effect on certain of our visitors. He gestured around the room at the rest of the art. These works represent our last and hopefully final civil war, a scant fifty cycles ago. We nearly destroyed ourselves as a species, and we are still rebuilding. Coming to the conclusion that wars were unhealthy for us wasn't much of a leap in logic. We have applied ourselves to peaceful pursuits ever since, as you will see in our concluding exhibit. As Nomali led us onward, Mary hung back and touched me on the arm. Are you all right? Stepanov was pretty
1: nasty. Like I care what somebody like her says, I rolled my eyes. What did you see? Eh, nothing. I rubbed my forehead again. Trick of the light, probably. If you're sure. She was concerned,
2: and it was cute. Positive. Look, here we are at the crowning glory of the Mandanese culture. I smiled through my headache. Don't worry about me. Go examine your stuff. Nomali droned on about turning the weapons of war to peaceful purposes and coming together for the good of all Mondanese, and I tuned him out again. The art in this room was a huge leap in both beauty and execution, above anything we'd seen before. The colors in the paintings, the textures of the sculptures, the clarity of the design, with everything lit just so, all combined to nearly dazzle me. They'd really knocked themselves out to put this together. As one of Nomali's eyes swiveled on its stalk to follow me, I stepped closer to a painting showing an underwater. City. Something was off. On the surface, the picture was a happy scene of Mandanese going about their daily lives in pursuit of whatever it was they pursued. And yet. The artist had used colors outside normal human spectrums to show something completely different. Everyone in the painting was actually dead, killed in some awful way. Tentacles ripped off, bodies eviscerated, heads cleaved in half. This was not a pretty picture. Everything else in the room was the same. A pastoral holo of a farmer ploughing a field wasn't so pastoral when I realized that he was ploughing bodies. Children weren't playing in that statue over there, they were killing each other and using eyeballs and body parts as missiles. The centerpiece of the room was a life sized infrared depicting the ghostly Mondan with the extra eye tentacles. He was nailed to a board and his skin was bruised, scraped, and cut. Surrounded by Mondanese who were jeering and pelting him with stuff, his expression was one of long suffering and somehow contentment. The infrared scene ended with him dying before it started up again from the beginning. Peaceful purpose is my ass, and I was the only one who could see it. The ache in my head had turned into a definite thumping. Nomali was winding down. An assistant came in, carrying a painting. Please allow us to present you with this gift of goodwill, Nomali said. We commissioned one of our finest artists to paint this in anticipation of your arrival. I hope our species can come together in the interests of all sentient beings. Outward appearances to the contrary, I think you have found, through our art, that we're not so different from one another. I'll say, I muttered, eyeing the painting. It portrayed a group of Mondanese and a group of humans, seemingly coming to some sort of agreement over a table. Closer examination proved that the leader of the humans had her throat sliced open and the rest of them were wearing chains. The others had no idea what was really in that painting. Mary bounced with excitement. Daniel appeared to still be slightly skeptical, but looked like he was more than halfway sold. He wasn't nearly suspicious enough if his conspiracy theories could be allayed by a simple present. Stepanov's expression was smug. Thank you for the lovely gift, she said. I'll convey your message to our leaders. I'm sure we can come to an accord that will be beneficial to both our peoples. God, I wanted to throw up, and not just because my head was pounding. I decided to play the part of the board security guard and rolled my eyes. Are we done? Can we go now? Stepanov muttered Nicolternichromagnon and gathered Mary and Daniel in her wake.
1: I followed with my headache fading as we left the museum. My write-up was going to be really interesting. Jenna shook her head. I stood in her office, facing her across her desk. I can't possibly
2: file this report, Fitz. The higher-ups would crucify me. Better than having our entire species wiped out by big old treacherous squids. Lots of people have examined the painting they gave us. None of them have seen what you said you did in this ridiculous report. She pushed it back across the desk to me. Fix it, or I'm not responsible for what happens to your job. The enhancements. Experts with the same enhancements as you looked at the painting. In fact, Stepanov has the same enhancements you do. They're not seeing it. She sighed. Either your chip is malfunctioning or something else is going on with you, Fitz. Do I need to send you back to the shrinks? A sliver of self-doubt nibbled at me. I was positive I'd seen all that stuff, but... Maybe I'd merited Stepanov's glare when I asked about the ghost in the corner of that one painting. I just thought she couldn't see it. But that an art professor was enhanced was pretty logical. I grasped the final straw. Can I see the painting they sent back with us again? Jenna pursed her lips. Honestly, Fitz, the only reason I've indulged you this far is because I feel bad about how the last job went. She ran her hand through her short-cropped hair. But if you do, and it's fine, will you modify this damned report? Her conditions for seeing the painting made me uneasy, but I needed to look at it one more time, if only to convince myself that I wasn't going crazy. Fine. Somehow she managed to get us in to see it that day. It stood on an easel in its own naturally lit room, and I stared at it helplessly.
1: She planted her hands on her hips and cocked her head. Well? Well. But. Crap. Jenna, I swear. But it was no good. The hidden images in the painting were gone. If they'd ever been there at all. My shoulders slumped and I shook my head in defeat. Yeah, okay. Sleeping was never easy for me in any case, so when the door to my quarters opened late that
2: night, I woke up with my hand on the blaster under my pillow. Before I could bring it to bear on whatever had invaded my room, one of those damned mandan squids leaped in and landed on my chest. The thing was incredibly fast and even bigger than the ones I'd previously met, and it wrapped tentacles around my arms and legs, holding me immobile. Another tentacle wrapped around my throat, and still another shoved its way into my mouth and down my gullet. I couldn't move, couldn't breathe. I gagged, trying unsuccessfully to bite down, but my jaw didn't have enough leverage. The Mandin tasted like day-old fish left in the sun. I'd learned their secret and now I was going to die for it. My last thought was that maybe Jenna would believe me now. And I came truly awake, gasping, sitting on my
1: bed in a cold sweat. I barely made it to my bathroom in time to vomit into the recycler. I didn't fall asleep for the rest of the night.
2: Mary requested me specifically when she went back to Mandinia to have a closer look at the artwork the next day. I grudgingly accepted, torn between wanting to know if I'd been seeing things that weren't there, and never wanting to go back. The nightmare still haunted me. She sat on the floor in the very last room, taking notes and making sketches, while I prowled around like a caged and hungry bear. The works that had featured extra hidden elements were missing those elements, and the niggling doubt about my first impressions exploded into full-blown wondering if I was crazy. And the headache was back. Except. The centerpiece was still there, in the middle of the room, and Mary couldn't see it, and I had no way to bring it to her attention. Hey, Mary, have a peek at the invisible artwork, isn't it interesting? Yeah, that'd go over real well. I wandered around the infrared, looking at it from every angle. It was roped off and probably alarmed, so I couldn't get as close to it as I wanted. For a piece of artwork made of heat, it was amazingly lifelike and heartbreaking. I felt bad for the mandin nailed to the board. He seemed so resigned to his fate that I wanted to reach in there and save him myself. Mary noticed me circling the ropes.
1: Fitz, what are you doing? Oh, um, nothing. I shrugged, elaborately casual. I'm sorry. Her expression was
2: contrite. You must be awfully bored here with nothing to do but wait for me. Nah, it's fine. I gave her a grin and sat beside her. Would rather be bored than otherwise, especially since they still won't let me bring weapons in here. She swatted me playfully.
1: Peaceful people now, remember? Yeah, I guess so. But the infrared sculpture in the center of the room gave the lie to that. You will not stop us. The infrasonic voice echoed in my head.
2: I'd gone to sleep not long ago, and my room was completely black. Not a glimmer helped my enhanced vision pierce the darkness, but it felt as though the room was spinning around, possibly as a result of the infrasound which had had that effect before. Your race will be subjugated like others before, one more in a long line of conquests. I saw, you saw what we allowed you to see, no more or less. I'll tell my boss, I croaked. She won't believe you, and this is your burden and your nightmare. To tell and be thought insane and possibly institutionalized. Or to not tell and live with the knowledge that you may have prevented it somehow. Why me? My anguished cry echoed around the room. You are a test subject, nothing more. Be grateful we aren't testing you more thoroughly. A flash of light gleamed off a wickedly sharp surgical instrument before winking out. I twitched awake in a cold sweat, with a scream clawing from my throat behind clenched teeth. The next time Mary took me down, the centerpiece was gone, replaced by a combination solid and holo-sculpture that nearly took my breath away with its beauty. Whatever you wanted to say about the Mandanese, I had to admit they could do art that even I could appreciate, even if I couldn't quantify why it was so pretty. It just was, and I didn't even know what it represented. It was just this huge, abstract thing. Pain bloomed behind my eyes again, but I was starting to get used to it, maybe even welcome it. Do you mind if I poke through the other exhibits? I asked Mary. Oh, go right ahead. She waved her hand. The only reason I'm inflicting this on you in the first place is because the officials insist. What's going to happen to me in an art museum? I could imagine plenty of things, but she was only a scream away if she needed me. I wasn't planning on going far.
1: Just into the previous room, in fact, I wanted to see if the ghostly extra-tentacled mandin was still in the aftermath painting. He wasn't.
2: And now I definitely thought the whole thing might be a figment of my imagination. I was getting really tired of whoever it was playing peekaboo with me. If they were, I sighed. Maybe the infrared sculpture had been put in the wrong room by mistake. Maybe the Mondanese were as kind-hearted as they wanted us to believe. Maybe I hadn't really seen what I thought in the gift painting. Maybe I was projecting. Security work on the rougher edge of the universe had turned me into a suspicious bastard, expecting violence at every turn. Maybe Jenna was right and I had cracked seeing things that didn't exist and attributing nasty motives to a peaceful people. Maybe I did need to go visit the shrinks. I hadn't seen a single weapon any of the times I'd come down to the planet, after all. The museum security guards weren't armed, and the Mandanese thronging the street in front of the museum didn't have so much as a knife on them. This job had me imagining things. Ghosts.
1: Because really, who made infrared sculptures? Yeah. No maybes about it. I did need to visit the shrinks. Delayed-onset post-traumatic stress, they said. They fiddled with the interface chip for my enhancements,
2: made faces, and booked me on the next ship home to Earth. I sat in the passenger waiting lounge, listening to music and zoning out on my prescribed happy pills. I felt a tap on my shoulder, and there stood Mary with a shaky smile on her face. Fitz, I heard you were leaving us. She shifted her weight back and forth, and I got the impression that she didn't want me to go. You'll never guess. The mandanese
1: sent you a special present. A jolt of unease shivered down my spine. What sort of present? She handed me a small abstract painting. This, they said the artist painted it just for you. Isn't it fabulous?
2: The paint swirled over the canvas in a riot of color. Shades that humans were never meant to detect coiled across it, drawing my eye towards the center, where a tiny ghostly image of the extra-tentacled mandan resided. The headache returned and I greeted it like an old friend. The picture was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I was stunned. How in the world could I ever have thought that the Mondanese wanted to harm us? Something in the back of my brain screamed a warning, but I shoved it aside. My subconscious had gotten me into enough trouble already. The Mondanese were conquerors, yes, and heroes. They would do what was best for all of us. I could see that now. And I continued to believe it at home in the hospital. Staring at my painting, even when their warships filled the sky over Earth, and ultraviolet and infrared beams lanced down, incinerating people and buildings, creating another kind of Mandanese masterpiece.
3: And there you go. Big thank you to Julie. Julie, thank you so much for that. What a fantastic story. Please check out Plasma Frequency Magazine as well. It was a new one to me, but when they're putting out stories like that, that's just first class. Big thank you. Big thank you to Jeremy for finding that. And Mark, what a narration, sir. Thank you so much. Hopefully, hopefully we can kind of tap into your services again. Yes, that would be very nice. So that is today's show. So a few things. Don't forget, get the blueprint for Bruce, Doctor Bruce Stringwater's sonic tractor beam there. That would be fantastic. Sign up to the newsletter. You will kind of get awesome, fab stuff there. We're a nice big, not big community, nice community over there, and it's it's lovely just to kind of get the word out and tell you things and just share a little bit of kind of. I guess myself, do you know what I mean? And that's what I'm gonna, at the end of this, you know, after the kind of, the credits, if anyone wants to listen, because it's not science fiction at all. Do you know what I mean? But, like I say, the police should be involved. They really should have been involved. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, do come back next week and do think, honestly, I'm not joking here. think about, you know, a Patreon kind of supporting the show. It would just mean a lot. Do you know what I mean? It just kind of puts a kind of little few shekels in my pockets and makes everything worthwhile and keeps these three shows going. Do you know what I mean? Please, 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 that would be fantastic. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes
0: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of procedure machine. for in This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
3: This is just, again, just one of these things. At the very end, you know, and I like to have a little kind of natter, and (laughs) I just like to talk, do you know what I mean? And it's, I guess it's more than that as well. It's just nice to kind of, Give something else, you know, like just talk about something else and just make a kind of fuller picture of, you know, people who are kind of coming over to this show now who just think, who is this fella? Do you know what I mean? And it's just kind of give you a little bit, kind of an eye opener to kind of my life, my kind of growing up and just little incidents, you know, little things that have kind of happened in my life. And the intention is actually that some of these things I'll be popping in the emails, you know, like the newsletter. Just to, like, say, the, the District of Wonders, you know what I mean? That's the kind of, the whole hub of the newsletter. And it's just to give a little kind of fuller flavour to that. So something like what I'm going to talk about today, I've wrote up as a kind a, of a, a newsletter kind of article. And sometimes, you know, in the future I'll be kind of doing more of that on the, the newsletter as well. But let's get back to kind of what I want to talk about is, and it's about kind of, you know, going back to kind of childhood and, I'm starting to kind of think a lot now about me kind of my childhood past because you know some of my kind of greats I kind of seem to be passing away pretty quickly. Do you know what I mean? Lemmy's gone from Motorhead, and yeah, I I might not have been a kind of big Motorhead fan, but the man was there right throughout my kind of musical influences. Do you know what I mean? That band were kind of there, friends were listening to them, you know. So I grew up with that. But then Bowie's gone as well, and it's just like, man, in in a, a selfish way, I'm kind of getting. Put, you know, I'm, I'm worrying about getting pushed up to the kind of front of the cliff. You know what I mean? It's kind of my turn, kind of. Do you know, when you're a kid, you just never, never go anywhere near that kind of. God, that's just years and miles away. Do you know what I mean? You never even worry about it. And especially when we were kids, do you know what I mean? We were just like kind of just out all the time. Do you know what I mean? Never, never even worried about kind of anything like that, we were just out playing, that was it, playing out, do you know what I mean, and there's a Dylan Thomas poem, called Fern Hill, and, I'm not a big kind of, poetry buff, you know what I mean, but I'm kind of a big, Dylan Thomas fan, and that poem, it's opening line, now, as I was young and easy, under the apple boughs, that just sums up my childhood, do you know what I mean, it was, it really was you know what I mean, I had a, a fantastic childhood I grew up in all sorts of like places. We lived on a kind of farm we lived in pubs, we lived in a fish and chip shop in the lake district we you know had like cottages in the lake district, we lived in the kind of northeast in the countryside of England It was just you know, and we were just all the time do you know what I mean kinda of, the door was open you know if it wasn't school, the door was open at eight o'clock in the morning, and we just were scrabbling out doing all sorts of kind of. Things you know, but one instance where it stuck in my mind, you know, because probably how dangerous it was, you know what I mean? As well, is the thing that kind of again, I'm kind of reflecting back on my childhood and that. And you know, if I knew my son Reed was up to these kind of things, man, I'd be putting the law down, you know, no way. But, like I say, we went out, you know, and we played all the time, and the mothers, fathers didn't know where the hell we were, you know what I mean, in the kind of, especially in the six weeks holidays, school holidays, we were aware, but there was one thing that brought everything together as, as kids, and that was fire, do you know what I mean, fire just kind of ignited the, the kind of passion, the kind of delirium we had, do you know what I mean, just the kind of, whooping it up with kind of fire was this thing and we lit fires everywhere, do you know what I mean? Yeah, we were, we were kind of probably, we were not naughty, but you know what I mean? We were kind of little rips, do you know what I mean? Lighting farmers' fields, you know, like cornfields, lighting the sides of like gorse banks, you know, like kind of wilderness, you know, that kind of gorse, you know, lighting the ones with the flowers on. The, the kind of yellow flowers lighten up, the, they burn like so. Oh, 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 oh. look, I'm getting excited again. Man. That goes up like something not right, green or not green. Do you know what I mean? Also, the inside of it is kind of this dry, you know, what I mean? just like away with it, you know. And all these like little fires accumulated. This is, this is the thing, he's accumulated on Guy Fawkes night, the 5th of December, when this was like kind of you know, the, the kind of sacred holy day for kind of kids, you know, Guy Fawkes. Like, and actually, the lead up to it as well because it was a given when you were kind of our age, you know, like in kind of this 13, 12, 13, 14-year-old age. Do you know what I mean? Girls still weren't there. You know, drink hadn't come into it. Fire still, do you know what I mean? That was the kind of, that was the kind of, you know, the kind of fly round the, the bloody, the light, you know what I mean? The kind of, Moth round the light, should I say, the fires. And this lead up to Guy Fawkes, it was, like I say, it was a a given that you went out and you burned other fires. Do you know what I mean? That was the whole thing. You You were in a gang, and it's not like gangs today, but it was a kind of gang, and you just, you would build this fire. You would go around for weeks collecting wood, but you wouldn't build it, you know what I mean? The kind of novice gangs would build it straight away. You wouldn't build it straight away. You'd have it scattered all over the place, you know, ready to collect because you didn't want yours burnt down, then probably a week before we you know kind of marshal the troops and started kind of collecting it together, and started building it, and mind you, these fires were huge, you know like when they say bonfires I've never really seen one, even display ones man we had we used to live not far from this quarry, and one of our friends lived on the kind of the very edge of the quarry and had so much land you know, at his disposal. And that's where we always kind of had these these fires, you know, this kind of, and they were just massive, do you know what I mean? And it literally was, you know, I mean, you kind of hear these stories where, you know, you kind of slept in them and we kind of, we always had guards on them, no no matter what, even if the lad who was kind of close by, who lived close by, you know, just kept a a close eye on the run-up. We always were aware that kind of the danger of other people coming, do you know what I mean? We always left as well, when we kind of went foraging for fires, we always left a couple of lads there, just to make sure, you know what I mean, there wasn't any kind of counter, you know, reprisals, and we did, mind you, and any fire that was built up in that week leading up to Guy Fawkes was game, and mind you, we scrabbled over kind of hedgerows, walls, everything. We carried bottles of petrol. <laughs> Honestly, bottles of petrol. And we were away, man. We were like, whoa. Like a bloody locust swarm. Do you know what I mean? If we kind of spotted one, it was... Just, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Straight in. Your bottles of petrol thrown on, ignited. Whoosh. And it was away. And I don't know if it was our signature thing. I don't know where this has come from in my mind, but I can remember... We used to always blow the fire up as well. So we used to put in... This is where it's... This is where... Right, now can you see where it's... I'm starting to kind of think of my son does this. We used to blow it up. And to blow the fires up, we used to kind of light them with the petrol. But we also used to throw in... I can't even believe I'm admitting this. We used to throw in a gas canister. You know, like a camping stove. You know, them little kind of blue ones. Probably the size of a kind of... A coffee mug, you know that kind of size. You would put in one of them, and it would kind of, you know, the fire would be aware. Then this would blow up, and sometimes it wouldn't kind of blow the fire up, but it would get it would be the signal that we have achieved it. You know what I mean? This fire has been destroyed, and you know, eventually the the kind of the flames would take hold. But this kind of, boom, that's it. Do you know what I mean that was it? You know, mean? kind of that one was defeated. And like I say, these cans would kind of, do you know, and even. The horse kind of threw aerosols on fire and jump over the fire. <laughs> even when I was married, right? Even when I was married to Melanie, right? We used to go like off like big gangs so would get like a. I'm jumping away here, but just, this has just come back. We would get like I say, a cottage or kind of you know somewhere like that. We'd have a fire outside. We even put, <laughs> I'm so you know, I'm in my 20s. We even put like tins of baked beans on the fire and jump over the fire. Do you know what I mean? And this tin of baked beans is like just getting ready to blow and then we would jump over it as like grown adults. You know what I mean? Whooping. Then this tin of beans would blow up and it was like in this kind of bizarre fantasy way. It was almost magical because it's raining beans. You know what I mean? It's like little kind of... These little beans are kind of falling from the... And it's like they go over a, quite a distance. Do you know what I mean? And there's quite a few beans in one tin. And it was just like raining beans, which is just... yeah. Do you know I mean? Oh, I've got so much. But anyway, getting back to this kind of sticking gas, you know, gas... Gas c- cylinders into your fire. That was the kind of... that was our, I don't know if it was our signature tune or we, everybody else did it as well. But we would go out, we'd cover it in petrol, throw the matches on, throw a canister in, watch it blow up, you know what I mean? And we talked about, in this kind of one year leading up to Guy Fawkes, we talked about, there was this, rumours of this kind of fire being built in a place called Wynlayton. Which is, from where I'm probably lived at the time, probably about 7 or 8 miles, so it was a fair distance and we'd heard this fire was a biggin, do you know what I mean? This was kinda of, this was like the mother of all fires. And it was just like bees on the hunt, you know what I mean? We, we had to get there, we had to try and attempt it, do you know what I mean? We left two lads at our kind of, you know, our fire kind of garden. And ours was like massive, do you know what I mean? It like you had to you, you scrabbled over it and climbed. Over, it was like the eiger, do you know what I mean? It was kinda of huge thing, and we left two lads there because we knew the eruptions on, if we got this fire, you know what I mean? The chances are ours would go down as well. So we, we went off and we carried off, you know, with our kind of, honestly, milk bottles full of petrol. That's how we carry you know. We didn't kind of have anything special. It was just glass milk bottles full of petrol. And we took off on our little bikes and we rode this kind of seven or eight mile to this kind of, and mind you, this. Fire was massive. Do you know what I mean? It was on an oval playing field, but there was no goalposts. It was one of them kind of playing fields, you know, just kind of like a this bit of land next to an estate. But it was monumental. I think it was bigger than ours, you know what I mean? If kind of I want to be honest and truthful, there. Huge thing, massive thing. And there was about, I'm saying, ten away, probably at that time ready to do the business, do you know I mean? We're all kind of little bikes and we're parked up and we kind of watched it for a while just to make sure if there was anybody there, you know what I mean? This was like, this was modern warfare in the I'm sure it was in the, was it in the 70s? It must have been in the 70s, do you know what I mean? Modern warfare for kids, do you know what I mean? And like I say, nowadays, man, they don't go out. My son, you know what I mean? It's just kind of all online, you know, Xbox. But for us, man we were just aware with, like I say, mothers hadn't a clue. Fathers didn't even know where the hell we were. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, we watched this fire for ages. And again, we wanted like, the signature, kind of, we wanted the gas cylinder in. Now, we knew that we'd had in England this fire was big and we brought, like, a bigger gas cylinder. We didn't realise how big, you know what I mean, now that it kind of, what happened afterwards, you know what I mean? Now we realize maybe that was a big one. But we put, you know, we'd got this gas cylinder, and this wasn't just like a an aluminium gas cylinder, this was like a cast iron thing. Do you know what I mean? It was probably, it was one of those ones. I mean, if you're UK, and they're probably the same, you know, all over the world, it was probably about, say, half a foot high, you know, maybe like, I don't know, say, the kilogram size, you, about the size of a, say, a football with a kind of flat bottom. Do you know what I mean? That kind of size, you know, but it was certainly cast iron of, you know, of the metal. It wasn't like kind of thin aluminium. So we off. We were aware we had this thing and we just kind of watched for this. You know, no there was nobody actually guarding this fire. I don't know it's hard to kind of think back. Was this a kind of an organized fire? You know, you know, like a proper event fire? Or I mean they were they were big game as well, you know what I mean if we could set them away that was great. We don't know it was just there was no one there, but the thing was huge. you know what I mean we shot over ten of it in the in the night, shot over with little bottles of petrol, and with this kind of this ex this gas cylinder, and I swear to God it went up, you know what I mean with this kind of initial kind of Bottles of petrol. It went up like something not right. You know, within seconds, it was roaring. We're chucked in. Do you know what I mean? We're chucked in this. I don't know who chucked it in. I don't know. We chucked it in this gas cylinder and just kind of got the hell out of, you know, as they say, Dodge, and just watched from kind of, you know, a, m- m- not miles away, but a kind of fair old distance. And this fire was just roaring, man. Do you know what I mean? It was just like... Uh, if it was going to be lit by professionals or whoever you know a few days later if it went up as good as that then they would have been proud of it you know what I mean because like you say and this was in the middle of the night you know what I mean it was kind of or late on by now it was a spectacular sight and we'd got this in and no one came out no one still I also remember that it was quite bizarre and quite spooky do you know what I mean it was a way and no one came out to see this kind of fire and mind you when it went, when it exploded, I haven't seen anything like that. I haven't seen it, you know, in, in me, God help us, n- I never do see a bomb go off. Do you know what I mean? But this was just unreal the explosion that came from this kind of gas cylinder that we put in. And man, if anyone had be, if anyone been getting, you know, when we think, I think about it now, that shrapnel must have went everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It, it didn't go off, but this, you know, it didn't kind of, you know, thank God hurt anybody. That's what I'm trying to say. But it went off like an atomic bomb. The cloud shape and everything, even the wave, the sound wave hit us. You know what I mean? You could feel it. It even, do you know what I mean? Because this, it smashed a couple of windows in kind of, of what you call like kind of the estate near it. Do you know what I mean? It was just Unreal. It blew out this fire. And this fire, I'm t- I'm talking probably the size of a smallish house. Do you know what I mean? This thing was huge. And maybe now, you know what I mean, kind of everything so romanticizing looking back. It probably wasn't that big. But to us, it was bloody huge. I mean, you could climb over it. That's how big it was. You know what I mean? It blew that fire out. It blew it away. You know what I mean? It just the whole thing was gone. And... Honestly, this is the kind of, it's stuck in my mind, man, for kind of 30, 40 years there now, whatever it is. Like this tiny, tiny, you know, kind of radiant fire drops, just kind of embers, just kind of everywhere in the night sky. Do you know what I mean? Just kind of drifting and falling down like kind of. Shards of red hot rain. Do you know what I mean? It was just magical, this kind of sight. And it, But it was that big an explosion. Do you know what I mean? Honestly, you kind of... It was almost like... I don't know if I weighed myself, but that kind of... You know, you kind of... You know, like maybe a couple of dribbles and sneaked out there. It was so like... Shit. What have we done? And I think... Look, I don't know if there was another one after that, but my God... Do you know what I mean? If that was the kind of... I can't, I can't even remember if we kind of carried on year after year after that. But if we did, if we didn't, that was the kind of the pinnacle of it. You know what I mean? This fire just went out like, like a bomb. Do you know what I mean? It just... Boom, gone. And we heard back... Because by that time, we were freaking stuck. Almost in tears. Do you know what I mean? It was like, oh, gee. Just scooting back home on our bikes. Do you know what I mean? We just kind a of head down... Just tore home in kind of minutes, do you know what I mean? We were just kind of, for one better, you know, cruder description, shitting ourselves. Do you know what I mean? We just thought that's it, do you know what I mean? Those windows broke, do you know what I mean? We were kind of, this was out of our league. We'd done something here that was kind of a little bit too, too dangerous for us. And we'd heard when we kind of, you know, like a couple of days later, there was a three-foot hole in the ground where this thing had gone, do you know what I mean, and it exploded. Man, do you know what I mean, and nothing come of it, you know what I mean, I don't know if anyone knew it was us, do you know what I mean, I, I don't know if, you know, my village kind of had a reputation or not, but nothing was said, nothing was done, it was just like, we did it, you know what I mean, and there's only a kind of few who know about it do you know what I mean and like I'm offloading for what all but that's a a time in my life that was just looking back now magical man just like you know you must have yourselves events in your life that kind of defined you and changed you do you know what I mean and this was one for me like say fires were my like well all the way when we played out it was just a time a kind of you know fire just Bonded were together, and like I say, we were kind of honestly lighting bank sides. If we could, i have seen it now, man. It's like a confession. If we could get a fire engine to a like a a bank side, you know, because we live in the kind of countryside. If we could get a fire engine to a bank side, that was just like. <laughs> It was just, you know, achievement unlocked. You know, it was party initiation. Did you hear? Did you hear about Diggy like that? Whoa, man, two engines, two engines. You know what I mean? And looking now, you think, man, you just wouldn't do it, man. You wouldn't do it. But at that time, when we were just kids, we were just like, like I say, do you know what I mean? Dylan Thomas Poem. Now, as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, it just sums it up for us, man. Do you know what I mean? So there's a little kind of glimpse in the kind of the younger life of Mr. Till, Mr. Tony C. Smith. Yes. And if someone, you know, thinks they don't, I think we actually need to contact the authorities for this. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's very cathartic getting it off my chest. You know, I've held it for 30 odd years. Do you know what I mean? Ye man like you say would would what would I do if I knew my son was doing these things hey man there you go